0: Esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, which will be available May 15th of 2020. Depending on you when you're listening to it, it might be available already now. Go get it. Uh, if you haven't, if it's not come out yet, don't despair. There are two other books in the series, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People is the second book, and the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as a paperback and audiobook, and the e-book is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so if you like the idea of eleven-year-old uh, detectives racing around Latimer City on jetpacks, fighting giant robot bees, alligator people, all manner of uh, terrible monsters and villains, this is going to be the series for you. Uh, under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, novels for older readers, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, and the five-volume serial horror novel The Book of David, uh, which is about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is nuts, and the first chapter of the Book of David uh, is also free to download as an ebook. Uh, So that's The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Once you're hooked on the story, come see me with money for Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. You're going to have a good time. Uh, Or you prefer the middle grade, stick with Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Either way, I'm going to hook you up with a free book. Have a good time. Uh, As always, for information about what's going on with the show or interviews with hundreds of different uh, publishing professionals, such as literary agents, editors, folks you're interested in, and all my favorite authors, Uh, Head to MiddleGradeNinja.com, read your heart out, check out previous episodes of the show. It's a good time. Uh, Today, I couldn't be more excited. I am going to be talking with Matali Perkins, uh, whose classic, classic novel, Rickshaw Girl, uh, is about to be released as, uh, or adapted and released as a major motion picture. Matali Perkins, how are you
1: today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here.
0: I couldn't be more uh, thrilled that you're here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, for the uninitiated who haven't been uh, watching uh, YouTube videos of you, uh, who haven't didn't just stay up last night really reading Rickshaw Girl and getting uh, pumped up, remind esteemed audience uh, who you are.
1: Yes, my name is Mitali Perkins, and if you forget Mitali, just think of tamale and switch it around. So that's a helpful mnemonic. Uh, I was born in India and we immigrated here when I was seven years old Never thought I'd be a children's book writer in a million years when you immigrate. There's two choices engineer or doctor So becoming a children's book writer was not on the horizon, but I always read I read and read and read and eventually I wrote my first book and then my second and then bit by bit now I think I have book 13 and 14 coming out and I um, Many tales of rejection and woe along the way, but here I am, excited to be here as a full-time children's book writer.
0: Well, that's about to be, uh, although the rejection and woe was about to be in proportion surpassed by the joy and the happiness of all the success (laughs) that has followed sense, right? (laughs) <laughs>
1: yes and no. As you know, when you've been here a while, there's always going to be some setbacks and disappointments, and you have to hold on tightly to the fact that you love the vocation, that you love writing books, and that you love writing books for kids, because it's an, it's an up and down sort of a career. It's not this trajectory from success to success, usually. If you're going to be here for the long journey, I think it's there's always going to be some some setbacks. But you keep going, you keep holding on with a bigger vision. That's what I've been trying to do.
0: And I read that uh, uh, Rickshaw Girl, I think, was you said was rejected 22 times.
1: Oh, that was my second book, Robert Monsoon Summer. That took 11 years between book one and book two. I, I was soundly rejected. I revised it so many times, and. Rickshaw Girl was also pretty pretty well rejected. I don't think it was twenty two. I can't remember. I think it was maybe. I don't remember. It was a lot, and uh, I like to my, imagine
0: there are twenty one editors in the world just kicking themselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. You no, know, they're not kicking themselves. But uh, but I I think uh, yeah, it was just there was not a sense that at that time in the industry that. Children in America wanted to read books that were fully set overseas with no bridge characters, as I call them, no American characters to lead them into the worlds that were so far away. But as you and I know, children don't read like adults. Children cross borders so fluidly. They don't need bridge characters. They just jump right into a story, into another world, and they make friends there. And they they don't need the sort of help that adults need to uh, leave the comfort of one culture and go into another. So uh, as soon as the industry opened its doors to my global books and, and realized, hey, these kids, not just mine, but other people's, kids love reading books about kids and, uh, and they can make connections and they don't need that helping hand that adults do.
0: You mean to tell me that adults don't always know the best thing for child readers? This
1: is not- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I do definitely. I think children read like they learn languages. They read with their hearts open, their minds open, and they just learn things. They learn stories like they learn languages. It's just easier for them than for us adults. We have our minds in charge of our hearts. By the time you're an adult, and you're always judging and and uh, adjudicating and making sure that. You like this story and critics criticizing, but children are just open, which of course makes the books for them even more dangerous in some ways because it's going to reach their hearts and minds. That's why I think there's so much conflict and turmoil over children's books in particular when it comes to uh, adults, gatekeepers, getting all excited about them. But children, I think they're better readers, much better readers than we are
0: plus you have the advantage that one uh at any given point they're presumably the largest portion of the largest segment of the population. Yes. Uh, there's a
1: boatload kind of... of them. I must feel like that to you with your 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 little guy. My kids are grown, so I'm like I'm they don't feel like I have as many kids around as I used to. I miss having kids around all the time, but but uh, yeah, there's there's definitely children always coming forward, always ready to um have stories and there's nothing like a good story to shape a child for life. So We've got to keep our, our minds to the task.
0: So what, uh, what during all the time uh, being rejected for, you said, 11 years between first and second book, uh, and then you're still facing some closed doors along the way. Um, not many. No, certainly uh, not now. Not to the, the, the Mitali Perkins oh of Little Great Ninja podcast, among other things. That's right. Um,
1: I'm right. <laughs> I have a this is career pinnacle. I have so arrived right now. There's no more setbacks all the doors this, fly this is open. The I hope
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope you take the time to breathe it in and enjoy it. Yeah, wow, wow. Um, what, uh, what kept you going during all that time, and what keeps you interested in writing specifically for
1: uh, teens and for children? Mm, I think it's kind of what I was talking about before um, when, uh, uh, when I was t- explaining how children read differently. I think it's, and I was saying that we need to we need to really feed them with stories. It's really that I, I've tried to hold on both to the career and to the vocation. Now, when I mean a vocation, I mean a sense of purpose, that the reason why I was put on this planet. And I didn't come to that. As I said, I was thinking, oh, I'm never going to be a children's book writer as my career or my vocation but I think I began to see how stories had shaped me and how they changed me and how they'd widened my imagination and the ability to imagine life in another person's skin. I was an avid reader as a kid. I would just, I was a feral reader. Nobody curated books for me. I just roamed the library and I would pick books and read them and read them. And so I saw how they affected me. And so I started realizing what a powerful vocation this is. So I think the sustaining of my life as a children's book writer uh all these years i i don't know robert where you were in 1993 when my first book came out maybe you were uh in middle school yourself perhaps but but i've been writing a long time and so the sustaining of it comes from uh, holding on tightly to that vocation this is what i love to do this is how i want to serve the planet so that when you get the career setbacks the rejections the Poor reviews sometimes, the not winning the awards, the book that goes out of print, you know, all those things will come as you, in your career, and there can be disheartening, but uh, if you feel that sense of mission and call and purpose, then you can keep going. So that's kind of how I've been able to feed a career that has a lot of bumps, by really coming back to that sense of purpose that I've—that uh, fuels my vocation.
0: That was a good guess. I just did the math in my head. I was in eighth grade. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you were a middle middle school, middle school middle grade, and that's when and that's when all your viewers, if you're listening, you won't see. But when your viewers would say, "How could that be, Metali? 1993. That's when they would say that. Although now, when I tell people I have kids who are 20, my kids are 27. No, I I wait a moment because I think they're gonna say, "What?" You, but you know what, Robert, nobody says that anymore. <laughs> They're just like, oh, really? I want to know very... who your plastic surgeon is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have cranky? I mean, they don't, nobody's stopped, nobody misses a beat, which is fine. I come from a culture where age is venerated and it makes you a celebrity, so I'm good, I'm good with that.
0: <laughs> One advantage that I have in life is I have never been that attractive. So as I continue to decay and become less attractive, I'm not
1: losing that much. It's fine. Uh,
0: uh,
1: no, I feel like that. I had a really beautiful sister when I was in middle school. I had two beautiful sisters, and I was always sort of the book nerd. And I was not—I uh, was a, not at all popular in middle school. In fact, I started middle school when I was in seventh grade, and it was in, in America. And it was quite an adventure uh, because nobody knew what to do with me. It was, a, it was an all-white school, and they all thought I was – I don't know what they thought. But uh, during those, that, those years when my sisters were so getting a lot of attention, you know, exoticized, I kind of flew under the radar, and I'm always grateful for that because what you do is you don't build your identity around those, the things that give you power in society, whether it's wealth or beauty or whatever. And so that when you do lose it, because you're going to lose it, your identity is much stronger because it's not built on those things. So I've always been grateful that I was not with three of us and I was not considered the attractive both sister, which set me free for all many dilemmas that my sister, sis, my sister's faced. So yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. But you have chubby little cheeks like me. We both have the cute <laughs> chubby cheeks. That's a good thing. Yeah. The chubby cheek club.
0: Well, I tell you, the nice thing—I uh, know that there's, you know, the the Americanized standard of beauty that we're going to see on magazine covers, whoever's on the new movie poster. But the truth is, there are folks out there like my wife who are genuinely attracted <laughs> to <laughs> not that, which really works out. It's great. Oh, there's somebody out there that's, that's attracted sweet. to almost everybody.
1: Exactly. I know we've been married what thirty-four years now. You know, and so the good thing about staying married to this the thing about staying married to the same person, Robert—is that your eyes go at the same time, so that when you, when you lean into the kiss, the goodnight kiss, you look exactly the same as you did, you know, 30 years ago. You're like, oh, wow, honey, you haven't changed. I can't see ya, but you look great. <laughs> anyway. I
0: assume you still look like you did when you were 20. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. And Audrey Hepburn blur, you know, the Casablanca blur.
0: Uh, I Because I've been stalking you, I, I listened to you talk uh, uh, on another video about uh, coming to this country, being in an all-white school, and then when your older sister started to date, your, your dad didn't understand because he said, no, 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 you get married and then you date.
1: <laughs> yeah, my sisters, uh, yeah, they broke, I'm so glad I'm the youngest. I, are you the youngest of the family?
0: Uh, I am technically either the oldest or the middle, depending on if my older half-sister uh, was uh-huh. at the house that weekend.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, she took some of the pain for you, then maybe half the pain, but my, my, my sisters, because they were older, they took... My parents were so broken down by the time they got to me. So I, they did. My sisters did really good work weakening the parental uh, restrictions. They were just, uh, yeah. Dating. Yeah. You know, my parents had an arranged marriage. They didn't meet each other till they got married. The day of their wedding is when they first saw each other. And then they went on romantic Hollywood, Bollywood movies and walks. And they actually had a wonderful marriage. They were married for 62 years, really happily. So, uh, so when my sister started getting asked out by these California guys, my dad was like, what is it? What is that? This is a date. He didn't understand the word date. He thought that it was a fruit that you ate and he didn't get it. So it was a there was a lot of um, sibling uh, camaraderie keeping my dad in the dark as to what was actually <laughs> happening with the both sisters. As I said, my sisters were both beautiful. So I did a lot of covering there for them. In return, they broke my parents down, so it was a good exchange.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if he was staunchly uh, pro-arranged marriage, uh, then it, he must have got a good one.
1: <laughs> it must uh, have worked out for him. <laughs> he did. He's my, my mom, and he had a wonderful marriage. Now, of course, my sons are now the age where they're—I don't know what it is with these 20-somethings. None of them date anymore. So I remember my dad tr- saying, oh, I will fix your marriage, and we were like, no way, dad. Now I'm thinking, Dad had the right idea. I think I could pick a great wives for my sons. But, of course, they're not interested in letting me do that. But, oh, well.
0: <laughs> so. Well, you know, I think that it, uh, half the time that might not be so bad because I know so many people that pick themselves and pick terrible choices.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and let me tell you, what, ha- tell you what happens is if I pick their wives and, they, and the marriage starts to hit rocky roads, rock, rocky places – And they come to me and say, oh, gosh, Mom, I'm having a hard time. Well, then I'll get in. I'll get in there. I'll do all I can to fight for it. But if I didn't pick them, then I'll be like, you picked her, honey. It's your, it's your, (laughs) Yep. I don't know. I wasn't sure. (laughs) No, I won't do that. I'll be, I'll totally love future daughter-in-laws. I'll be all in. I promise.
0: Just to share them. You would have picked them for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would there. as long as they read children's. I books, if I'd they're... married
0: the woman my mom wanted me uh, to marry, uh, my life would be miserable. Oh, good reminder. I
1: only I only want them to be children's books readers. That's all. That they have to be able to be, tell me what, what book they've read recently, and then they'll be fine.
0: One other question I had uh, about your background, and then I want to dig in and, and, and talk rickshaw girl. Because okay. uh, I'm I'm very excited. Like I said, I I, I had read it. Um, I don't remember how long ago because uh, I saw it in a classroom. Uh, and I was like, girl, this is interesting. And I'd I, I read it then. And so I was so excited to talk to you. And then last night I said, I, I, I uh, had taught a, a writing workshop and then I, I came home from doing all the student work. Like, all right, it's, it's, it's my time. It's fun. And I, and I reread it. and I'm so excited. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, because I saw that you have lived just about everywhere. Uh, it might almost be easier to list the places you haven't lived.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad was a civil engineer. So he worked on ports and harbors. So I moved around a lot with him. And then when I got married, I still had Wanderlust. I, I, uh, we traveled a lot, lived in Thailand for three years, Bangladesh for three years. That's when I did the research for Rickshaw Girl and India. And um, so, yeah, travel. But now I'm moving, as I said, moving back to the zip code where my parents for- bought their first house when we first moved to America. I'm moving 10 blocks away from my mom who's on her own. So I'm going, I like to tell people I'm going back to the Jude farm. Uh, where, uh, where we and our boys are going to be really nearby too. So we're I have this big extended family and, and walking distance from each other, which is, so I'm going back to my roots on the Bengali jute farm, having my whole family, three generations all around, which is the wonderful.
0: Sounds like the most ideal living situation. Yeah, you
1: it will be. will be when the, especially when the next generation comes, you know, when that, when I'm the, I'm the grandma, that'll be great. I'll, I'm going to be all in.
0: I wanted to ask about living so many different places and being exposed directly to so many different cultures, not just watching a documentary, but, but being there, living amongst them. Um, what does that bring to your perspective of humanity and what does that bring to your writing?
1: Well, because I grew up between two cultures and I was doing this, what, uh, what I call code switching. I was cracking the code of California junior high school life and high school life. I was you know, curling my hair, trying to become one of Charlie's angels, thinking that would miraculously work uh, at school. And then at home, it was traditional jute Farm Bengali family. So I had to really master that code. And uh, so because I traveled back and forth almost every day of my life between cultures, I feel like what happens when you do that, even though it's tough as a kid, is that you, bec- you acquire this ability to code switch that doesn't leave you. And I, when I travel overseas, I see that, I, that it's such a benefit because I can pick up the nuances, the nonverbals, the things that hurt people or make people laugh so much faster than people who grew up monoculturally. Uh, and I find that to be a great advantage for me as an adult now. You don't, you don't keep all the code switching fluency that kids have, but something about your brain stays uh, a little, keeps a little bit of it. So when I go to a third or fourth culture, it's pretty easy to make myself feel at home because I never felt at home anywhere. So I've learned to make myself feel at home everywhere. And I think that's what I love about traveling is that I really love understanding the nuances and picking up all the ways, well, I try in my life, try to make people feel loved and cared for. And if I could do that in another culture, it's just so interesting to see how I can make someone feel valued and honored in another culture. It's always a great fun challenge to do that. So that's what, one of the reasons I love traveling. So for people
0: that want to go out there and and, and do likewise,
1: um,
0: and then they should, that sounds like a great great approach. How do you do that? How do you make yourself immediately comfortable in a culture Mm -hmm. uh, and find ways to set other people at ease?
1: It's hard to do when you didn't grow up doing that. When you just grew up within a culture that was just monocultural, it's hard to acquire. It's like acquiring a language as an adult. It takes diligent study and it takes extra work when you're not fluent in code switching. Um, so sorry about that if you're monocultural, but if, if not, if not you, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you grew up between cultures, you know, already you've got that skill. Uh, but if, you're, if you grew up monoculturally, I'd say, and you don't have much money, that's why you read, because then you can imagine your life in another person's skin, and you learn so fluidly. You learn so, when you're inside a story, you don't even have to learn, worry about it. When I was in Thailand, I had little kids and I was struggling to learn Thai. It's a tonal language, so, and I'm not good at tonal languages. Bengali, my mother tongue, is not tonal. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so what, what happens in a tonal language is I just got stuck, and I was tired, I was a mom, and so my Thai teacher finally figured out that in order for me to learn Thai, she was gonna have to use children's books. So one day she brought home Babar in Thai, and another book in Thai, and I began reading those books in Thai, And all of a sudden, my tie just started picking up because that kind of fluency is acquired through reading. Uh, So I would say read a ton of books that make you cross borders. If you want to acquire that kind of cultural code switching ability, start with the books. Pick up a book about somebody that's totally uh, from another culture, another language, a translated book maybe, and just dive in. And the more you do that, the better you'll become at this as an adult.
0: You mentioned that uh, if uh, you don't have a lot of money, you can enjoy books at the library. I would say even if you have a lot of money, just buy more books. Just
1: <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you did that plug for your books in the beginning. I, I'm so culturally, I, I just am not good at that. I was taking notes as to how smoothly and you did that so well. So I, I would I would wish I could do that. I'm, I'm always like, uh, do you want to, uh, you can get my books at the library. <laughs> because I, I didn't have money for books growing up. So I always got the books from the library. So I know, I don't know. I should be more brazen about it. Buy my books, Dad. <laughs> uh Wait.
0: Well, you know, what? I like doing that right at the beginning because then I don't feel pressured to bring it yeah. up like where it doesn't belong and try and shoehorn it into conversation.
1: Right. Like I, I, avoid, I never like... want to be
0: too aggressive, but don't watch the show. Watch or listen to the show for however many episodes this has been now. I know we're closing in on 70. Um don't watch or listen to all those episodes and never have an a night. Oh, you wrote a book, Mr. Kent? I had no idea. <laughs> that would be
1: terrible. That's, that's just a disservice. That's the other part of it. You have to honor that vocation. I mean, you've written a book. That should be that should be something that you honor. I don't know. Being apologetic about it is not, is not necessarily the best thing at all. So I appreciated that. I thought that was great. And then now I'm going to be like... <laughs> rickshaw girl
0: <laughs> Rickshaw Girl. <laughs> well no I'm gonna, I'm gonna set you up right now because i want to talk about rickshaw girl All right. and the first thing i could do is summarize other people's books oh. uh, especially if i've got the author right here why would you want to listen to me get your book wrong when i could just say to you i'm Itali perkins author of rickshaw girl please tell us about rickshaw girl
1: okay rickshaw girl is the story of a, of a girl who's growing up in bangladesh and in her culture, it's uh, difficult for girls to work, to make money outside of the home. And so they're just two daughters and their father drives a rickshaw, he gets sick. And so Naeem is the oldest daughter and she's had to drop out of school. They don't have money for school fees for both sisters. So she's, she's just indignant that a girl cannot make money. She can paint, she can draw alpanas, which is the traditional art that girls do on the doorsteps of houses. She's good at that, but that's not a money-making thing. That's just a decorative thing. So why can't a girl make money? And she's frustrated. And so she decides that she's going to try to help her dad out and see if she can drive his rickshaw, even though you never see a girl driving a rickshaw. so She comes up with this this crazy plan. And, of course, everything goes awry. And uh, then she has to make it right. She has to have the courage to make things right because she makes a huge mistake that almost – that really takes down – her, has a cost on her, her whole family. And then she has to figure out a way to make it right. So that's what that book is about. And uh, it's kind of fun now because I uh, wrote it so long ago. And as I said, it was rejected so many times, Robert. And um, it didn't get any starred reviews. It didn't get any awards. It just kind of went under the radar. But I just got this picture of little Naima pedaling along on her rickshaw because it was translated into almost every language that values duty. And honor. So most of the Asian languages. In fact, in Japan, it sells well. In Taiwanese, in Mandarin, in Hindi, in Marathi, in a lot of cultures where duty is valued and honoring your parents is valued, it's done really well. And so it's fun for me to see it sell also here in the United States, where we have more and more kids from those kind of cultures that have that uh, that value. But I think also Americans are, are reading it, too. Like, I'm born in the USA, American. So um, so it's fun to see that, that a book that was so quiet kind of picking up steam bit by bit. She's pedaling uphill. She's making it. So exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, so I, um, I'm going to jump straight to a question I wanted to ask you, because you wrote that. Uh, it was published back in, what, 2008, 2007?
1: 2007. 2007.
0: So now, and, and and it was, you know, 22 rejections somewhere in there, plus a long process to get it. How, how long a process was it to get it from written to published?
1: The first draft was uh, a picture book. It was called, yeah, it was a picture book. And uh, every time I wrote a picture book back in those days, uh, editors would say, you know, this should be a novel. This should be a novel. And what happened was I was, it was, I don't know if you've ever been to these signings, Robert, where. You're sitting at a signing at an event. It was a, a conference in Boston. I can't remember if it was ALA or something, but I had my second book, Monsoon Summer from Random House. And I was sitting in, a, in one of those conferences. I don't know about you, but I always end up being next to one of these celebrity authors. So you're sitting there and there's no one there in your line. And then there's these long lines that are snaking out for the people next to you. So it was one of those events and I had no one in my line. I was just sitting there. And I had the manuscript of Rickshaw Girl that I was working on and so uh, this lovely lady from the back of the line and the other line, the author um, next to me, I can't remember who was next to me, probably John Green or somebody like that, I don't know <laughs> who it was, uh, some wonderful writer that was had lots of fans, and um, this lady left the line, this woman left the line, came up to me and said, hey, I, I, I read Mountain Summer, and I really liked it, and I'm an editor at Charles Bridge, and this is after all the rejections of Rickshaw Girl, she said, well, what are you working on next, and I said, well, I have this manuscript, this, this Rickshaw Girl, so uh, actually gave her the manuscript, and, and it was Judy O'Malley. Back in the day, she worked as an editor in Charles Bridge. And then she emailed me back, and I didn't have an edit an agent then. No, no, I did have an agent, right? But we weren't selling any. No, I did have my agent, Laura, read it then. But that's how, that's how that book got acquired, was just in a terrible signing line at a dud event, just showing up, which is part of the career, right? You just show up, and you just never know who's going to... You're gonna meet, and that's why you keep taking yourself to these events and keep showing up. So, uh, so Charlesbridge acquired it back in 2005. I think it took a couple of years to edit it and get it in shape for a middle grade novel, and then from a picture book, and then it was published, and then it got no star reviews, and then it got no awards, and then it all that stuff. You know, for those
0: of you listening, she's she's pumping her fist with each of these. <laughs> no pump, awards pump.
1: no stars i'm pumping my rickshaw i'm pedaling i'm pushing it up <laughs> pushing it up. yeah i've tried i tried to ride rick drive a rickshaw they are hard to pump so you take a lot of effort
0: was that uh, part of the necessary research to to write yeah. the book is hopping on a rickshaw yourself and
1: yes i'll do a spoiler that. because your readers probably their listeners probably are not little kids but i will do a spoiler um the rickshaw she crashes her father's rickshaw and uh so I had to see how hard it was to drive a rickshaw. And could I crash it? So I got—I did try to do it, and it's very easy to crash. Trust me. So, uh, so I had to do that. Yeah, when we were there, that was part of the research for sure
0: such well, since you, you've, you've done a spoiler, I have to tell you uh, that I absolutely love that scene because I, I did not see it coming. Um, you did a, such a wonderful job of building up how much the rickshaw means to the entire family, how much they've sacrificed for it. Uh, and then she hops on and goes, like, well, here's the moment. This is going to be triumphant. And then, as you said, the, the rickshaw crashes. I'm like, oh, what did you do? Oh, this is the worst thing you could have
1: done. Oh, like, no. so- <laughs> I know. I know. Okay, so this is how long ago the book was written. Uh It was adapted to a stage play about two, three years ago. And it was the Bay Area Children's Theater adapted it to a stage play. And so it was right here in San Francisco. I took my mom to go see it. We were in the back of the theater and the actors were embodying the characters and it was this beautiful set. And we were just immersed in the story. And then Naima crashed the rickshaw and my mom and I clutched each other's hands and we gasped and we said, oh, no, what's going to happen now? <laughs> and my mom then looked at me and she said, you wrote the book. <laughs> I had totally <laughs> forgotten that I wrote the book. It was such an immersive experience seeing it adapted by these beautiful brown skinned bodies and the art and the music. It was just it was transforming to see it in that media. So it's going to be fun to see uh, see it in another media, too.
0: Oh, I can relate I was uh, listening to one of my own audiobooks uh, as, as research for a sequel. Uh, I don't know within the last two years and we arrived at our destination and I had to stop And oh it's it's coming up and my wife's just staring at me like you know how it ends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but you know books, when an audio narrator interpret did you do your own book?
0: Did oh you... no goodness no I got a I got a nice professional.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. So, when I listen to my audiobooks, the same things happen because the same thing happens. I can forget that it's my story. that's why I love listening to my books on audio, they always sound 10 times better th- to me because the, the actor is interpreting it so beautifully. And Because I, I, usually, I don't know about you, but I always think, oh, my work is, uh, sucks. That's my <laughs> modus. That's my <laughs> modus operandi. Oh, only I was better at my craft. Oh, I want to
0: vacillate I'm, back and forth between this is the greatest thing a human being has ever written. <laughs> oh, I don't Oh, to my that. God. What was I thinking? It's <laughs> never one usually, or the other. No, or something. I don't
1: vacillate. <laughs> I'm usually at ah, this is mortifying. I can't believe I did this. So then uh, when I listen to it on audio, I think, and the audio, you know, it's a good voice actor, and they're bringing all the character. I think, hey, man, this is good. I like the stories. I just finished listening to one of my novels, and there were five um, actors, voice actors. They were incredible. I, I, There were times where I, my own writing made me cry. I was like, you're pathetic. You're making yourself cry. But it's because the acting was so good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I've cried at my own books uh, before. <laughs> uh, I try never to do it anywhere anyone can see me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a new narcissism. level of conceit I'm not yeah. ready to share with the Ultimate
1: world. narcissism. <laughs> oh, my own book stirring me to such depth.
0: <laughs> one of my favorite audiobook recordings, I can't remember, I, maybe it's The Notebook, It says it's a Nicholas Sparks book, and it's one where somebody dies at the end, which is like, that's half of them, maybe more, uh, but he cried, he was reading his audiobook and he starts crying oh, at the end, they're like, oh man, you should have done another take, that's not, oh, that's <laughs> I'm sweet. embarrassed
1: for you. I think that's really sweet, <laughs> I, I get choked up when I read my picture book, I'll show, I, I'll hold up my picture book. Yeah, this is between us and Abuela, my first picture book, which is, I know you're middle grade, but I read it aloud to schools. I can never get through that story. It's about a grandmother separated from her kid, and when they when mm. they are having their moment, I just get choked up. It's just, so, oh, well, I'm me and Nicholas Sparks, would we'll be friends. What am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> we be <we're> crying, buddies. <laughs>
0: I'm sure he's a lovely man. I just remember listening to that book in the car and just and, stopping it.
1: Like, a gri- <laughs> get a grip, man. Get a grip.
0: <laughs> but in all fairness, I'm also not the target audience for. I think, this is just it looks.
1: <laughs> right, right, right.
0: Well, I wanted uh, to ask you about uh, this this ride, this 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 uphill uh, cycling of, uh, of rickshaw girl, where it just can't be stopped. Uh, it's published every year. It's finding new readers. New generations are discovering, and they're going to be reading it to their kids. It's gonna it's it's it's, it's a new classic. Uh, it's been a stage play. Now it's going to be a major motion picture. So how does that your experience with the book changed from the point that it's unpublished to now? How, how has that relationship with your book evolved?
1: Well, I'm especially excited about the movie, I think because I always worried about that book a little bit because it was, I, it, people would say to me, wow, Mitali's got writing an authentic story because I'm Bengali, right? And, but the book is about, an, an uneducated rickshaw driver's daughter who's Muslim. And I grew up, my parents before the war, my my grandfather was an educated Hindu landowner who employed Muslims and probably exploited them. So the gap between myself and my character was huge when it came to power and privilege. And I always knew that. So I lived there for three years. I, You know, you try your best to unpack your privilege and to to listen and to learn. But I always felt like, oh gosh, I'm not Muslim. I'm not... I didn't have that experience, and I did my best. So, and and it was also interesting to me because I grew up with my grandfather really being bitter about Muslims because he lost the jute farm in the war, uh, and we had to flee the border across the India side. And I, I wasn't born then, but um, my grandfather had to lose the land, lose the house, and Muslims took it. So, and on the on the other side, uh, Hindus were taking Muslim land. So it was it was equally. Exploitative. Unfortunately, in my family, it was in that direction. So I grew up hearing pretty negative things about that. And, um, you know, when you grow up with hearing negative things about another subset of people, you have to work really hard as an adult to really root that out. And even though you know that you don't feel that way, it's still in your child's, I think it's still in there. So I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I wanted to offer it as a peacemaking, uh, as a peacemaking offering. And so, uh, some amazing things happened, Robert. I, I got to tell you some, some, a couple of stories. Well, first, uh, when I went to do research for the book, I visited my, my, uh, my grandfather's jute farm. I showed up on the doorstep of unannounced of this house that I had seven generations of my family who had been in that house before we lost it in the war. And the grandson of the person who had t- taken over the land was there. And he was not pleased to see me. I look like a beau, So look like a, I, my face resembles that very much my father's and my grandfather's face. So he knew instantly who I was. And he was very uh, suspicious as to my motives. I had come laden with gifts for the uh, for the family. I wanted to really make peace. So as I drove up, now, this is something you don't this is like so stranger than fiction, because I had this intention to want to make peace. I was doing research for the book. And uh, I drove up and out of nowhere, I saw these two white birds. They were white doves that flew out of the sky. My father used to tell me about the beautiful white birds that were part of the, the land. They flew out of nowhere and they landed on the door, on the door, the top of the door of the house where seven generations of my family had lived. And they stayed there the entire time that I was visiting that house. So I got to go into the house. I got to give presents to the women. They were, uh, you know, of course, it was a Muslim house, so the women were inside, so I was able to go in, and uh, we had a wonderful visit. By the end, we were all good friends, and I was able to say, you know, we've been blessed, and we just bless you and hope, wish all the blessings to your family, and so it was a real peacemaking moment for me. Because of all the bitterness I had uh, heard growing up. So I was so happy to do that. And the white doves were such a gift. I couldn't put that in the story because people would be like, oh, this is so contrived. (laughs) This is just such a contrived technique. I can't believe she used white doves. So this this is when truth is like, wow, who's writing this story? There's something bigger going on here. And then now the book, it traveled to Bangladesh. And it was read by a Bangladeshi screenwriter and a Bangladeshi director and Bangladeshi actors, all Muslims, who are now taking that story and making it their own. They've changed it, I think, somewhat significantly. They've added, they've made more action, they've made her older. And usually I'm pretty curmudgeonly about adaptations because I think, hey, you know, the book's always better. But in this case, I feel like they're going to be adding in those layers of authenticity and truth that I so always wanted to bring into the book. So I'm actually really excited, so thrilled that the book is out of my hands. The story, a story really doesn't belong to you anyway. It belongs to the readers after you've written it. So now it's being adapted by all these beautiful Bangladeshi Muslims on there. And they've been just wonderful to me, so welcoming and so gracious. And so I feel like much more is happening around the story, around in my own life, sort of a full circle. Uh, So to be able to have it released in Bangladesh in a country where my parents had to flee during the war. It's just all this this wonderful experience. I Seeing it's going to be, I think, I'd probably just be bawling the whole time. <laughs> Ugly crying. I'll sit next to Nicholas Sparks, and we'll both cry in my
0: movie. <laughs> you can hold each other's
1: hands. What's going to happen to the rickshaw? Oh, It's, <laughs> it's reconciliation! <laughs> Yeah, I should invite him after this conversation. I should should find his book. <laughs> hey, I want to hang out with me, Nicholas. No, you anyway.
0: Show? you're a wonderful author. Uh, you can cry if you want to. We'll have a good time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. So anyway, that's the beauty of that story for me. It's it's got a bigger bigger story that's in in the you know not um, outside of the fictional realm. So I'm I'm so thrilled. Can't wait to see it.
0: You feel that. Uh... Uh, do you do you feel a sense of, of of terror and dread? Will they get my my story right, or do you feel an absolute peace and acceptance?
1: Yes, the latter. I I think yes. I feel like it's in sure hands, and they're adding this beautiful um, the, the the director Amitav Reza Choudhury. He is amazing, and uh, they co. It's the first collaboration between an American. Sleeper Wave Films uh, is co- co-producing it, is producing it with, and they went, the direct, the producer, Eric Adams, is just a strong supporter of the Bangladeshi film industry. And he, uh, he's just, it's just a really wonderful collaboration. I was thinking, here I am. Uh, well, I'm I'm a I'm a Christian. My parents are Hindus and a Muslim director and a, a Jewish producer are collaborating all, all of us together uh, to bring this story. So it's sort of a wonderful Uh, partnership between many many different people and it's it's exciting to me to see it all coming together yeah
0: did the uh, stage adaptation kind of uh, 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 what break break you in uh, prepare you for (laughs) for other Uh, actors doing and making choices with your characters
1: yeah that was really helpful because I I, they they stayed pretty true to the book with stage adaptation but I think because the movie is being made in Bangladesh on the land on the terrain um, and being acted by Bangladeshi actors, and it's just so rich with their their the texture, and I think it's going to be even better and more exciting than because of all of that. So, uh, so I'm not sure. I mean, I'm really glad it's not being made by Hollywood. It's it's being made by Dollywood, which is uh, their version of uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh. They're, they and it's a very nascent film industry. In fact, this is the first movie they're trying to get from Bangladesh into the film festivals that. This, they're hoping to get it, they, they did it in English so um, and they're dubbing it into Bengali as opposed to the other direction oh, wow. you know, so they're trying to they're trying to offer this story because of maybe because of all the col- collaboration to the international community to the global community as their contribution to the film industry which is it hasn't really been uh, Bangladeshi films haven't really been seen much outside of the Bangladeshi community so this is what they're hoping and I'm hoping hoping with them, hoping that it will reach Americans and British and Australians and Spain and just go all over the place and really touch people's hearts from Bangladesh as as to show what Bangladesh can do.
0: I like to imagine if Hollywood were to adapt it, where the, where would they put in the explosions? Yeah. <laughs> the rickshaw I would know. be a spaceship. Hey,
1: listen, my <laughs> 85-year-old mom is still around. I don't want Hollywood near that. That's probably had some steamy kissing scenes or something like that. And I'm mortified. Thankfully, uh, <laughs> if doesn't do that, <laughs> then it would be censored. I have to pass the censor board there. <laughs> yeah. And I
0: saw that uh, in, in a lot of the marketing right there on the poster, your name is extremely prominent from the novel by Mitali Perkins. It's in the description for the film. Uh, it's, it, it's all over it. Uh, how thrilling is that for you who, who once sat through all those rejections, didn't know if this would ever be a book, and now here's this major marketing campaign, Mitali Perkins. How, what, what's, what, well, let us vicariously experience that joy through you, oh, if you would.
1: I haven't even thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> I I think um, I remember on the post. There was two versions of the poster, and I had my dad around when my dad's favorite book of all of mine was Rickshaw Girl, and so he was around when the first movie poster came out. It was a sweet little girl face. They were still thinking of making her young, and my dad was quite old then. He had lost a lot of his capacity, and he couldn't. But he looked at her face for a long time. And he said, oh, she's such a sweet face. I love her. And I think, uh, you know, my dad, just my dad's really loving the, the poster. That's kind of what I remember when I think of the poster. I don't know. What's a name? I don't know. It's nobody can pronounce my name anyway. In America, I'm like, oh, my, I have a coffee shop name in America because no one can pronounce it here. I'll get like Madely, Madely. Per- uh, there was a guy in my college dorm who called me Attila. For the whole time I was in college. So nobody well, knowing pronounce-
0: Americans, there are people, probably people with both those names that spell it the same as yours.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Mitali gets mispronounced here. And then in India, people are like, so I think, oh, I'm in India. I'm in Bangladesh. People will get my name. And they say it perfectly. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to have Mitali. And then they'll say and they just totally can't pronounce Perkins I'm the only Metally Perkins on the planet did you know that you google me and only I come up the only weird combination of names there's tons of Mitalis there's tons of Perkins but you guys only know one Mitali Perkins because that's me
0: well, that's about to change with this movie marketing campaign. Everyone named Perkins is like, I know what I want to name my
1: daughter. Oh, right, yeah. They've to go viral among the Perkins clan.
0: It's good that you already bought your domain. Right.
1: <laughs> no, it's just, it's going to, I don't even know. It's it's a, what the movie's going to do, but it's just going to give, I hope it just brings joy, as much joy to other people. I haven't seen anything of it. I've been stalking everybody on Instagram, on Twitter, trying to catch any glimpse of it, because the actor who plays Naima is adorable. She's my Facebook friend now, Novera Rahman. And uh, so everything she posts, the stills, her I'm always stalking them. I, I don't know what's going on, though, Robert. I'm totally in the dark. I'm just doing social media stalking, which I'm really good at, because I'm the mother of millennials. So I'm an excellent <laughs> social media researcher. <laughs> so they
0: didn't, they didn't get the screenplay to you or, or anything?
1: No, no. Um, uh, so the screenwriter was a uh, Sharbari Ahmed, and she was uh, a Bangladeshi American who worked for the show Quantico. And uh, so she wrote the original screenplay. And then it went over to Bangladesh, and there was a co-writer who, um, who was able to add his signature to it. So I didn't really want to see it because, as I said, this book is getting the authenticity is just going to be added layer upon layer upon layer. And so for me to step in and say, oh, no, this is my book. I this is not that book to do that. There might be another book down the road where I'm a little bit more picky, but for this one, I'm just all like I'm just in wonderment and they've added some animation and some artistry, some rickshaw art. Some you know they got traditional rickshaw artists who are who've had their signature in the show into the new movie. So I'm so excited to see all of that talent pulled together. I have no qualms about it at all. Now, another book, I just got my another one of my books option for TV and um I might be more picky about that because it's it's uh, it's Hollywood, and I'm not sure how they'll do. It. So, but but for Dollywood, I'm like, go for it, everybody, do what you want, because I'm totally trust them. I think it's going to be wonderful.
0: Can you say which book got optioned, or better not yet?
1: No, I I can. It's not formally announced yet, but it's uh, the first daughter books. So I think uh, oh, both of those. Got, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of a middle grade book too. So yeah, but those I have no idea why they got optioned because they didn't sell well. I I don't know. It's election year. Who knows? It's all a mystery, Robert. If I could figure this out for a formula, I would be able to tell your listeners how to do it. I would tell you, but I have no idea how this works. It's all just being in the right place at the right time. That's kind of amazing.
0: I'm convinced some of the authors I talk to know the secret, but part of getting the secret is you have to swear some sort of terrible blood oath to never yes. reveal it.
1: <laughs> I would never tell you how to get your book's option. I know exactly how to do it, everyone. But I will not share that secret with you. <laughs> I, would, I would, I would. I just don't know how it happened. It's all, all the ups and all the downs It's such a mystery to me. I just think there's a bigger story going on. <laughs> At least in my life. I saw
0: my soul, but the devil never asked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right right no, no no that's not that's not how it works you don't want to do all that all that stuff that, that will just depress you anyway as children's Books writers we don't get access to all the power mongers anyway so we just have to sort of wait and hope right I don't know unless you have, you've married into some Hollywood family then maybe you have the connections but not any of us have those connections as far as I know do you have connections to the Batman world I want to. I want to use your connections.
0: No, if I had a connection to the Batman world, I'd never write one of my books again. All I'd write would be Batman stories.
1: Yeah, <laughs> my boys are huge Batman. I watched every single one of those movies because we all watched them as a family. Dark Knight, everything. And I, I saw your post about the Dark Knight being the best book you. Your one of your top three books. One of
0: my top three. Yeah, uh,
1: I would say. And the three books that you picked are all on my son's list. So I will leave your listeners to go and find that on your – if they're curious to know what are the top three Robert books and the top three of Metalli Perkins' son's books, you'll have to go to his website and find those for yourself. I'll leave them hanging. In suspense. I,
0: uh, I've been asking authors forever what are your top three favorite books uh, and of course I encourage people to cheat because it's sort of a silly question because why would you pick just a few most favorite books when there's an entire library out there at your disposal I have favorite books I haven't even read yet uh, and and but any of the ones that are on that list, which uh, you'll have to go and check out, are ones that I've read multiple times and make me the same. If I read any part of them, I'm going to sit down. It's, it's The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. That's the, the one we've agreed to spoil. The other is a random mystery until so you head to this, uh, the site. Uh, and that and if books, even If you're not a comic book fan, it's worth sitting down and reading. Um, what are uh, That's a perfect segue to Matali Perkins. What are some of your most favorite books?
1: Before we do that, I want to talk about how I just finished a proposal for two middle grade novels. Um, and so my agent is about to uh, shop those around. And what I used for that novel was, I don't know, you've probably used this, was the Save the Cat uh, oh. book. Yeah, so I, I listened to the podcast and I, I, um, I wanted the proposal to be a scene by scene proposal this time instead of just a, I usually have a really rich idea of character, but I wanted to have a really good idea of plot working hard to make my plots more suspenseful, more page turning. And uh, so I used to save the cat writes a novel um, and it was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. So I am really happy that I have that structure now when the book hopefully does find a publisher, which we're very close to, I can't announce yet, but, uh, but my, my two middle, middle two two middle grade novels will be coming out soon, hopefully. And I'll have that save the cat now structure that like a, 50-page proposal that I wrote, which I've never done, but it was a scene-by-scene scene that followed that whole Save the Cat model. Highly recommend it for you writers out there. Um, Are you uh,
0: typically more of a pantser, then?
1: Yeah, typically. I. Well, I don't think I am. I come up with this great structure, and then, unfortunately, I have to revise a mazillion times because it never stays. I think, oh, I've got it all. It's probably going to happen again. I think, oh, yeah, now I've got a great plot. But what happens is my characters, they just take a hold of the story and then they start doing different things. So what am I going to do? Just stifle their individuality? No, you have to let them go. So sometimes the characters just, I very write, I write character-driven novels, but I'm trying hard to write like you do, which is that, that exciting page-turning, spine-tingling, plot-driven novels. I, I'm trying for that. I think it's more, yeah, it's something. it's a goal of mine in craft to work really hard on plot. Make it more exciting and stakes and suspense and that kind of thing i don't naturally my characters who people really like could sit around and have tea and chat for like 45 chapters, and then you're like what what is happening in this novel nothing much There's a bunch Chapter of really nice, 46
0: hey, really interesting the people. Shop.
1: <laughs> hopefully people who <laughs> say characters will keep going but i want to make my next books really exciting so uh, so yeah, I'm not. I'm mostly a pantser, I guess. But uh, but I, this one's gonna have a strong plot spine structure, and I'm hopefully gonna just really be able to finish it quickly without my characters doing crazy things and taking control of the story. I will be in control this time. <laughs> <laughs> my passage. name
0: on the cover. You stop a character. We're yes, doing this. Stop it. <laughs> <See what? laughs> Well, something that uh, I find, and I, I think that a number of authors I've talked to also find, uh, is that their process while it doesn't never changes that dramatically because they're always still them. Um, it does seem like it's a little bit different for every book. You have to adapt to what that book needs from you and what you need from the book. I think maybe that's maybe that's just me talking woo. I don't know. It's one of the
1: well, I. I've tried to grow. as a, I'm trying to improve. I, I really want to grow in craft. I know what my weaknesses are. And I want each book to be better, richer, deeper. I'm trying to grow. Even at this stage in my career, I want to become better and better. So as a writer, as just in the craft of it, which is really what, that's the other thing that keeps you going in the, in the career, is the, just the joy of the craft. The wordplay, the, the way that you can improve the craft is really exciting. So I set goals for each one. This time it's really, I want to make a suspenseful plot. I want to make it so that my middle grade reader, the next book, Matali Fergus book, at night says, mom, I'll keep reading, dad, come on, I don't want to stop. And that, that's my goal for the next middle grade novel I write because that's, you know, my books are, there's some of that in there but I really want to take it to the next level to keep the kid really just enmeshed in the story. So I do well with place. I'm really good at place. I do great with people. And so I'm really trying to pick it up with plot and improve my craft in that. So, yeah, I'd say if you're not going to grow in your craft, then where's the joy of it? You have to get it's like a potter. You know, you're making hopefully you're making your pottery just learning the craft better and improving every single thing you make is going to be you're going to be pleased with it. That's the goal, too. So, yeah, that's hold your horses, though. I'll probably end up writing a scene where they are having tea and it'll last forever again. Just. (laughs) <laughs> think well, no, this. people
0: will just keep showing up with guns and every chapter will end with, oh, we have to put and, our key down. Someone I did that
1: in and Bamboo People. It. In Bamboo People, when I wrote Bamboo People, my boys were teenagers and they were like, mom, write to exciting. So they were playing Call of Duty a lot, the video game at that point, and I was watching them play Call of Duty and I was reading aloud my book Bamboo People to them while I was they were playing Call of Duty and I was trying to write it like levels, you know, video games, you beat all these levels. So I, I, that book's actually trying to be more of a page turner and I think it's okay I think it's a it's exciting I I have boys eighth grade boys seventh grade boys and girls too that say hey I can put it down and that's when I think I can do this I can really do they don't just have to sit there and say "Uh uh-huh and this and I'll talk about their feelings all the day all the time like uh, probably my natural vent anyway so I see how I diverted you away from the three books question Aren't I good at That's that?
0: Okay, you answered way more interesting questions, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, what what are some of your favorite? Uh,
1: someone recently accused me of being <laughs> a diverter of a conversation to avoid difficult, penetrating questions that bring attention to myself. I'm trying hard to pay attention to that when I do that. Ah, uh, three books, three books, Robert, three books. You can I, think read- life, I don't care. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm actually in the process of writing a nonfiction book about the books that I loved as a child that I reread it's called when it's going to be called when we loved reading and it's a call to reread books from our childhood so I'm actually writing a book of nonfiction about the books that I and each chapter is going to feature a book that I absolutely love and that I reread um, seasonally so I have I reread seasonally because I love place and I like to read books when they fit the season so secret garden kicks me off in the spring I'm about to start that um, and then it starts with that. I always start with that, and then it goes on. And there's different books that I read seasonally all through the year. Heidi, uh, and Miracles on Maple Hill. I mean, I can go on and on with the books I reread. Most of them have a rich sense of place, and most of them have a rich sense of family, and connections, and things like that. So, but I do have three fantasy books on that list. The Harry Potter books are all reread every November, from start to finish. Just uh, and then Lord of the Rings. The
0: whole thing every November.
1: Yeah. I reread all seven books. The seventh is my favorite. That's going to be included in this nonfiction book. Uh, Harry Potter 7 is one of my faves. Um, And then um, it's kind of taking a look at how with the books that you read, as I said, shape your heart and your mind toward justice or toward. And so how those books can really have they have the deeper virtues in them, a lot of them that I love so much, the deeper the the issues of power and issues of uh, character that I really that I really am drawn to. So, and then the Lord of the Rings, and then the Narnia books, those are the three that make my cycle. So, J.K. Rowling is the only living author on my, my rota of rereads. So, it's not good to get on that list, J.K., because you're going to, you know, all the rest, all the rest of those people on the list are dead now, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> you're the only living author remaining. <laughs>
0: nah she's gonna outlive us all she'll be fun when yeah. uh, transhumanism becomes available she'll be the yeah, first the author that can writer afford writer it so edit- she'll have a robot body she'll be writing Harry have a
1: clone that donates all of, her, all of her organs to her <laughs> she'll live forever
0: I, I usually in october when the leaves start to turn it's time for a, a mug of hot apple cider and one of the harry potters uh, i oh. usually i gravitate toward the goblet of fire that's my favorite that's but good. i i reread all of them multiple times uh, as have probably most of the people uh, watching or listening what do you get out of that at every year because i assume at this point you you have a pretty good idea what's going to happen to harry you know how that ends what are you taking away from that experience of rereading an entire seven books every year
1: Oh, that's a very good question. Let me think about that. What do I take? I think for me it's just, it's become part of my comfort reading. The part of that, the reading that I go back to because I know it's shaping me in in the right direction. So for the Harry Potter books, there's this deep exploration of Harry's rejection of power and Harry's refusal to pursue power when that's what Voldemort wants through all the books he chooses friendship and love even though he's flawed and even though he makes mistakes and he's a teenager and he's very human, he's consistently rejecting the pursuit of power in a way that even Dumbledore didn't, right? So for me, I, I feast on that because I feel like it's shaping me still. Every time I read it, that groove of being able to resist the pursuit of power for your own sake is deeply gets grooved into my heart and I feel like i will become a better person. So it's this comfort reading that I do. It's, it really isn't anything with any other intention, no, no desire to grow in a craft or anything. It's just the sense of these books make me better. They, they make me aware of my own heart and some patterns that I want to grow in and also want to reject when it comes to the negative things I see. And especially, you know, there's things going on in the country. And as, as you know, I just want to become a, a, the kind of person that brings life and hope and healing. And these books help me. They help me. So, and and I'm not doing it, they they also give me comfort. It's a stressful time in my life now, and every time there is stress, there's, I don't know what your go-to numbing agent is, Robert, we all have them. And mine is salt and vinegar potato chips and Harry Potter or Atomic Fireballs and Lord of the Rings it's always this food and reading combination. There are
0: specific foods for for the type of book that you want
1: to read even. Uh, Yes. And so I read and eat together all these delightful comfort foods and my stress level goes way down. I know that it's not necessarily, uh, and the books are great. I know the food part isn't necessarily healthy, but I just have always did that as a kid. It was a stressful time as immigrants and I would get to go to the library, get my books and all the din of the outside world would just, Qu- just get quiet in my head and i would immerse myself in the story and there would be this delight i used to eat sweet tart candies crawl out on the fire escape just like um a tree grows in brooklyn and i would drag my book out my mom never knew i was out there and i would just read read and eat, eat sweet tarts and it was just the ultimate pleasure so for me those rereads are nothing there's no purpose in them there's no um intent except just to receive the gift of the stories again and again so I think the stories we reread shape us beyond anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah, probably so. That's yeah. probably what's worked for me is rereading it by Stephen King every year, uh, every. Oh, you years.
1: gave it away. That's my son's. <laughs> other, that's my son's favorite too. Have you read On Writing by his book? Oh, Honor? several uh, times. Yeah, it's a good one. Wow. What? What? I'm grateful for that one of his books. So I do not like horror
0: in, I, in uh, it specifically. Where I, can, I can't I can justify it. If we want to sit down with like a serious let's all talk about brilliant books and you brought this to the party, I have to say, okay, but let me take these sections and we won't talk about them. And that makes me stronger too because every time I read it, I can have a little conversation with myself, right or wrong. Stephen King's probably right. Uh, uh, the two of us, I'm always going to give the credit to him. He's right. But that's okay because everything we're doing is a matter of opinion and my opinion about why that doesn't work informs the type of books that I want to write by by revisiting that way.
1: Well, that's great that you do that with it. I don't do that with the books that I I I, I love that are on my rota, my reread rota. I, I try to read them as I did as a child, and I know there's some of them, like Secret Garden, has some issues with race, and there's there's things in those books that are um, uh, that are problematic. I understand that, but I st- I still try to read them as I did as a kid, which was just very open heartedly. I don't try to critique them. I I do the critique before I read. And I would do the critique with our boys. Like when I read them the little house books or the secret garden, I brought my left brain along to teach them about the things that I would critique. But when I read them, I don't critique them in my rereading of them. Because I know I've already done that. I've gone over the hump of adulting my child self. And that healing has happened. So I can actually read that story and approach it in a very open way not without the critique so yeah and uh when it comes to Stephen King though it's it's hard I I only have read on writing Robert because I cannot do horror at all I did not have tv or or uh, movies until I, I didn't have any tv until I was 12 so I got all my stories by books and I developed this very avid imagination and so I cannot do any kind of horror movie at all my husband loves horror movies and so does my son and so they will watch the horror movies then they'll come home and then they'll tell me about the horror movies and then i can't sleep from what they tell me <laughs> <laughs> so, i i don't even like to hear a recap of a horror story it's i mean i'm terrible i i wish i could why can't horror, people in horror movies sit around and drink tea why don't they do <laughs> why don't they do that <laughs>
0: Well, I tell you yeah. what, what. I personally like everybody comes to their own thing, and, and I completely respect people don't like horror. I don't want to sit down and read nonstop Nicholas Sparks. That that that's not my thing. But <laughs> if it is for you, by God, do it. Yeah. Uh, but what yeah. I like about it is if I'm worried about a you know a bill, something relatively small in life, or maybe even something bigger, a sort of some kind of issue. It's not as bad as if a clown in the sewer was trying to kill ah, me and all that.
1: <laughs> 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 that clown in the sewer seat it's t- I mean, i've never read it and i've never seen it and i'm terrified of it just from the times that i've heard it mentioned and oh, you're you very bad to bring it culture. up <laughs> this is ten sun is setting here in california and you're bringing this up okay well, i
0: will steer us away because i'm watching our time and i'm seeing it yeah. fly away from us i've got just uh, a few more questions for you and we'll, we'll think about calling it a night because I, I i promise to uh, to be to be respectful every time because i really do appreciate you you're making the time today um so one question esteemed audience knows i have to ask you while we're talking about semi creepy stuff anyway i Holly perkins <laughs> have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them
1: haha this will show you our, our cultural differences because when i see the word flying saucer i don't think of sci-fi and i don't think of uh ufos i think of the times that my parents got in terrible fights and 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 i and we were they were passionate i told you my parents had a great marriage but there was stress and there was fights and there were actual flying saucers across the. <laughs> so i actually brought back a memory of a, a fight that my parents had where i think my mom was so mad that I think there was a blender that was actually involved in that one, so I, I do believe in them because I've seen. And as I said, they uh, they stayed married and they had a happy marriage at the end. There were some fiery times, so I have seen flying saucers in my apartment in New York City in 1970. <laughs> it was an actual flying. Flying plate.
0: <laughs> well, she makes you bad fights. There we are. I've seen flying saucers. Sorry, Perkins.
1: Sorry, down that path. But that's what I think of when I think of flying saucers. Is those childhood horrible fights I, which thankfully were healed, and they were uh they didn't happen after after we we left New York. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to make sure to ask you about promotion, but I had one more question about writing and then so maybe I don't know, maybe three, three more questions or so and we'll call it sure. a day. Is that unreasonable?
1: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah.
0: Um, cause I had a bunch of questions about Rickshaw Girl. We're going to check those out because we we talked about all kinds of interesting stuff. But something I really wanted to ask you about, because you're writing for different age groups. When do you know if a story is gonna be like a rickshaw girl that think ages two to uh, or grades two to five ages two to five or if it's gonna be bamboo people uh, for an older reader or a young adult novel like forward be back to you um, how do you approach those projects differently what what do you do to make sure you're appropriate for the audience and then also when in the process do you know that that's the audience that the story is for?
1: I'd say, Basically, the age of the protagonist and the and the problem the protagonist is facing. Uh, so, uh, for a teen, there's going to be um, a different set of problems, a different level of problems, whether it's fighting identity or uh, just a different set of challenges. And then, when it's an eleven-year-old or a fourteen-year-old, they're going to be facing. And I know the kids read up two years, maybe three. So, and my and my novels, even though they're teen novels, they people who don't like them will say, well, this, this sounds kind of like it could be a middle grade writing. And, uh, and my, like with Maima, you know, she has an economic crisis. It's not your standard middle grade problem. She's got a hungry family and it's p- global poverty and um, uh, microcredit and female empowerment. I mean, those are big issues, right? So, uh, so it's not necessarily by the issues. It's more, and my writing style tends to be pretty spare, even for the YA novels, I don't wield a lot of literary. I don't try to. I don't know. They're not like high literary. I, I keep things spare. I like nouns and verbs. I like short sentences. So I think a, an eighth grader, seventh grader, sixth grader could read my novels. There's nothing in them that's apart from the fact that these are teenagers who are dealing with teenage-sized problems. Um, that that would be probably where I draw how I shape the book. So, yeah, in this picture book, she's she's has to get a, uh, a present across the border, the border fence, to her grandmother, and that's her sized problem. She's, she's, she's uh, knitted a scarf for her grandmother, and her brother's drawn a picture, and how are they going to get that through the fence to their grandmother, who they haven't seen in five years. Um, so that is that book, and it, it fits, the, the challenge fits the age, and the solution fits the age, and so that's kind of what I, how I approach that.
0: Well, that could also be a subplot in a book for uh, old, much older readers. Uh, it could be that, oh, before the scary clown comes back, let us,
1: I <laughs> <I'm> going <gonna throw laughs> to There's a, a scary place. clown in the border. Oh, gosh. <laughs> You're going to torment me. Just like my boys and my husband, they all have to tease me with the horror movies. Anyway, that my is... Uh,
0: it's, it's, it's my older brother nature. If I find out is. something is a little bit squeamish, let's poke at that a little
1: bit. Yes! <laughs> oh, gosh, clowns are so terrifying. They're awful, horrible. And as I get older, I get, I'm get i getting down. I used to be able to watch some R movies and then PG-13. And now I'm like, I've got a... I just got a Verizon phone, so I have a free Disney subscription. And uh, so I'm watching all the old Disney... I'm watching Knobs and Broomsticks and all the old Disney movies. I'm scaling down to G-rated only at this point in my life. (laughs) Terrible.
0: Um, let, me, uh, let me pivot to marketing and promoting, because we were talking before, you're going out and you're doing uh, school, you travel, and then you do a bunch of school visits uh, in a row. So how much of your time are you spending promoting? And what are you finding to be, aside from obviously being on this podcast, what are you finding to be the most successful forms of marketing for your books?
1: I love social media. I, I've been on Twitter since 2008. And I have loved Twitter because I love the word limit. I feel I use it also, I've started using it a long time ago as a writing discipline, a writing practice, because you're, you have to say what you want to say in a small number of words. And I never use acronyms. I never use emojis. I say what I want to say with nouns and verbs so I can showcase my voice. So it's become a di- sort of a daily writing practice to tweet. I don't tweet a lot, but when I tweet, I try to say with my voice as I to show my craft and take my craft, even improve my craft via tweet, which has been great for picture books especially. So um that just started out as fun. It started out more on the vocation side of it. Like I'm gonna play with words. I'm gonna get on social media and play with words. I'm gonna caption my photos. I'm gonna it just became playtime for me and I found that really fun. What ended up happening was I show it did showcase my voice. People originally maybe think of me as a, a multicultural writer, Indian Ethnic, and then they realize, hey, she's kind of funny. Maybe you know, according to my boys, no, but according to me, yeah, I can be funny, <laughs> and uh, or she likes a wide range of things, and she's got these interests, and she's just wider than maybe just being that Asian American writer that's multi-culti good for uh, you know whatever that I get, I can de-tokenize myself, which is really liberating and showcase all of me um, on those on those channels. And what has happened is it's become a fantastic. Publicity and marketing tool. I've been able to really reach tons of uh, parents, teachers, librarians, and um, for the middle grade, of course, the kids aren't on there as much. But um, with Instagram, I've been able to reach teens. And so I, I feel like it's been a, just a fabulous gift to me. I didn't really, I feel like I've climbed up the backside of the hill when it comes to this career. I didn't get a lot of open doors back in the day. I was either tokenized or just sort of, I don't know, marginalized maybe back in the day. Now that the doors are more open to writers of color, I uh, still feel like I kind of miss the boat when it comes to that young, being that young, hot new writer that's got that incredible um, brand new sort of hot novel. I don't know. I I miss that boat. But but the great thing about coming up the backside of the hill is you learn really just, you slow yourself down and you get these great lessons of how to, just how to be yourself and not have to prove to anybody or try to have to, I don't know. I just feel like I'm so glad I climbed up the backside of the hill. So during those years of rejection, I just played around a lot with social media and I had a great time and I made lots of relationships and now I feel like it's paying, paying off in a great way in the publicity end. I have lots of wonderful relationships in the industry and, um, I love Twitter. I love Facebook. I love Instagram. I just love it all. I think it's what a gift to writers. It's it's a place where words can be are wielded to influence and to to bless and to cheer people up or to what a place we can do that. So I'm all for it, and I think that's probably the number one thing from a marketing, publicity, promotion point of view that has taken my career to the next level would be all of that I do just for fun on social media. But I'm careful with it, Robert. I think a lot of writers. When they get on there, they take shortcuts. We're writers. We have to be excellent with our craft no matter where it is. So I would challenge writers always to showcase your best writing, whether it's even captioning an Instagram photo. Make it interesting. Say something that that another person who's not a writer would never be able to say because you are a writer. So you should be able to caption that photo in a much more interesting story-like way than somebody who's not a writer. So that's my challenge to myself, and I love doing that.
0: Um, but how do, you, uh, how do you keep that going and keep yourself immersed in it without uh, letting it grow out of hand and, 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 and take over your life and take over the time you're supposed to be writing your books and all of that?
1: Sometimes it does, but I try to have good practices. Like I, don't, I don't take my phone into my app. I turn it off at, I'd say, right after, maybe before bedtime. So probably about 9 o'clock it's off and I don't turn it on again until 12 hours later. So, I don't have, and I have no notifications on on my phone. My phone is very streamlined. I don't, Twitter doesn't send me notifications. I don't have any of those. I have those all off. I only, what I do now is I I have texts on because I get, my mom has recently learned to text. She's 85, as I said. She's, so she's recently, so she texts me all throughout the day, like what she's doing. So, I get texts from her. That's the only notification I get on my phone is text because of my mom. Unfortunately, Robert, something has happened to my mom's keyboard recently because everything she's sending me is, has umlauts and is has germanized now she's accidentally turned on the german texting so she tells me instead of good night good night my darling now she says guten nicht <laughs> she's never spoken a word of uh german in her life but so i have to get i have to fix that but that's the only thing my phone does and it doesn't and so downstairs where where our bedroom is there's no screens there's no plugs there's no computers there's nothing it's just it's a serene space, and I keep it like that for 12 hours. So that's my daily practice. And then when I'm writing, I often turn just turn off the Internet. When I'm in the in the throes of revising, I just – I have to. I have deadlines. So deadlines are really – as you are under deadline now, so you know that's motivating. Um, and then I take one day a week off, totally off the Internet. So I have Sundays I'm just totally off. I just don't do anything. So that gives me the breaks I need because you have to guard your creativity, and the Internet will suck it right out of you, suck right out – and so you have to battle for it. So, And I fail. I fail because the Internet is a great time suck. But I'm still battling. I'm trying hard to guard my creativity. I'm, I, I try to go to museums. I try to listen to music so that I'm feeding my creative soul and walks it outside. And that all should be with, done without the Internet. Now I'm not one of these. I love it. As I said, it's very addictive to me. So I'm not one of these types that shun it. But I have to guard it because it will suck the creativity right out of me. And that's not faithful being um, to the vocation if I let that happen. So I fight for it. I fail and fight. I fail and fight. But I'm trying.
0: As somebody who once made the foolish decision to try to be cool in high school and took up smoking and then quit smoking, uh, I can't assure you that quitting Twitter is so much harder than quitting smoking really? cigarettes for cake compared to, to, to not not even tweeting, just reading Twitter and oh. Facebook and, and seeing what everybody's opinion is on the. Yeah,
1: world. it's so to- oh, hard, and then you start your day off, you know, totally discombobulated by all the you know the hashtags, these terrible hashtags that that throw you off that's what i'm saying by guarding your creative soul and your space i i really try not to start the day with twitter and close the day with if i close the day with twitter then i'm doomed because i'm depressed all night long when your creative brain is working the last thing you look at before you fall to sleep should be something that is life giving and hopeful i try i have a book of you know i have i have my uh, some books on my nightstand poetry and other things that i try to end the day with the very last thing that you feed yourself with spiritually intellectually that's going to be all night long your your subconscious mind is going to chew on that so you want to give it something really healthy and twitter is not that thing for sure so that's why i don't take my phone down because i know that i will look at it and i i just have to keep the phone out of the bedroom and keep the book there i have a candle i do it all i'm just like a little routine to get myself detoxed from all the stress of the day and it doesn't involve any screens so i would recommend that highly if, uh that's something that's that's I, yeah I, I think twitter is fun it's playtime for me but it's not something i can stay a long time there because it does get you down it definitely gets you down
0: good tip you now i i have <laughs> read it right before bed and it's a terrible idea i need to <laughs> do that
1: <laughs> yeah don't do that take a book of good poetry like I, I have a i know garrison keillor's on the down list now but he's a he's a book uh he, comp- he has an anthology called good poems for hard times and uh, I love poetry anthologies like that. So just take it down and just read a poem or read a psalm or something like that that will uh, get you through the night and your, your mind can wake up fresh and creative. we got to guard that well. The well uh, is where our stories come out of, right? And we got to guard that well. Guard that well well. <laughs>
0: Why? Uh, well, we, we, we've got to call it. I'm looking at the time and I've, I've, I'm I've abusing it. I did want to quickly confess because I this is a discussion that comes up frequently on the show. I think I've decided that for myself, I am a, an art purist. So if your art is good, I can enjoy it separate of whoever created it. So, like, I still have fond memories of watching The Cosby Show. I thought it was great <laughs> at the time. And I don't care what I do care what happened in real life, but that is separate from my my sacred enjoyment of The Cosby Show as a child. Uh, right. and, and so on. So Garrison Secular, whatever he did in his personal <laughs> life, I'm still going to enjoy like Wobe Gone. It's
1: fine. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, though, that you're like that, because if you look, you know, if you loved rickshaw girl let's say and then you you saw what my life was really like you'd be like "Ew!" I'm not you know if you were, (laughs) because none of us really hold up right when we look at when we hope we we really look at our lives and all the things that we do and say and think and if our readers were judging us by our lives well I think we would all fall short of the heroes that we create and then we look at our lives and we so thankfully there's a little bit of distance between our readers and us still because I think all of them would be devastated and disappointed by all of us because none of us creatives are uh, what I think they would adulate. They want to adulate, but uh, but none of us are worthy of that adulation, right? We're all... Broken and flawed, and that's how it goes. Sorry to say, Over readers. Sixty
0: drafts for a limited amount of time. I can give you a really great vision, and you can read that, and it's yeah. great. But don't you follow me around? You want <laughs> to be? You're gonna hope to see something exciting because I've, I've written some exciting books, and what you're gonna see is me sitting and reading, me sitting and playing a video game while I listen to a book. <laughs> is not gonna be.
1: I know. Exciting. I know. Where I know. That's the thing. Exactly. we want to be all noble and like these diligent creatives that are having this amazing life of creating stories, but actually we're just a bunch of procrastinators that are spending hours on Twitter and trying not to. (laughs) That's us. Stick to our characters. They're better than us.
0: If I could have lived that life, I wouldn't have needed to write about a protagonist. That's That's right.
1: Our characters are all better than me. Stick to them.
0: Matali, I've I've, I've got to call it because I promise you we we right. land this thing. So I'm going to ask you my final question. Uh, which is a lazy catch-all for all the things I should have asked you if I wasn't busy making scary clown jokes. Uh, (laughs) So what uh, if there was one bit of advice or however many bits of advice that uh, you like, if you could go back and give to yourself at the start of your writing career that would have made things easier for you and might make things easier for all of the uh, authors and soon-to-be authors listening, what would you go back and tell yourself?
1: I think I would have taken myself more seriously as a professional far earlier. I, I was embarrassed about it. I I my first you know my second book was getting rejected so many times. I just didn't have the courage to say, I am a writer. And um, I would have put my stake in the ground a little earlier and said, This is my calling, this is my contribution, I'm proud of it. I may not be there yet, I'm getting rejections, but I'm going to be very um, careful to invest in this calling. And I think I kind of hid it. I was secretive about it because there was so much failure involved. I was ashamed, but I think I would say, if you are called to be a writer, if that's what your joy is, your bliss is your way, you're going to contribute to this world, then take it seriously, invest in it. Invest. That's what I would tell myself, because I feel like, um, you know, the, 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 the unseen powers that be were definitely invested in it. There were stores being opened for me. There were things happening. And, and meanwhile, I was like, I don't know if I want to be a writer. I, I'm getting all these rejections and I'm so, I'm so bad. And, I'm, and I should have just been all in far earlier than I was and taken it myself and that, and that gift of writing far more seriously and professionally than I did. So I, if I could go back, I would do that again. I would say to you, writer, take if it's something that you love and, and you think you're called to do, be all in, give it your all, give it to, you know, treat, it, treat it like a gift and, and honor it and, and put in your, your investment and your time of learning. Um, I wish I had done that earlier.
0: It's never too late. So those of you that uh, started off uh, the wrong way, here's your, your call to action. Get it, uh, yeah, I'm still it.
1: writing. I'm still going. I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. <laughs> My best book is yet to come.
0: Um, well, plenty of great ones have have come already. I hope uh, I hope we get another uh, another sixteen to thirty.
1: <laughs> I better stop eating salt vinegar potato chips then, if I'm going to last that long.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, sometimes I joke that I would probably write more books if I didn't play Red Dead Redemption Two.
1: But that's oh. fine. I'm
0: okay with there being one or two less books in the world because that joy is so important to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is so weird talking to you because. I have twins, and I feel like I've discovered the triplet to my twins because you're exactly you're doing. you love all the things that my one son loves. So this is very bizarre. You guys would be friends if you met.: Yeah, uh,
0: well, hopefully one day we'll, we'll make that happen. Yeah. We'll hit it yeah. off famously, and hopefully you and I will sit down, we'll have some tea, we'll talk. It'll be wonderful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll even cry together. That'd be fun. <laughs>
0: uh, well, I will be respectfully Hoosier Stoic while you cry. That's about the best I can
1: <laughs> That's my goal. Make Robert cry with one of my books. Okay, I want you to read Between Us and Abuela when you see it, and let's tell me that you cried. You get that. we read it with your son. He's the perfect age for it.
0: You know, I I do cry when I read books, and I cry sometimes when I watch movies of Avengers Endgame. There wasn't a dry on the theater, including mine. But I feel like that's a form of applause and appreciation. So that's one reason I'll read a sad stories, because I can't cry in real life. So if there's a funeral, I will sit there the whole time. And then when I get home, get me something sad, because I need this (laughs)
1: release. I'll loan you my tear ducts. I cry constantly all the time. We'll do a tear duct transplant. You can have one of my sets, and then we'll be equal.
0: <laughs> uh, you'll be half stoic. I'll be a, more emotionally comfortable. You'll with become half, half a you'll have half
1: a Bengali woman sentimentality, and I'll have half a white Indiana guy <laughs> tear duct
0: <laughs> set. <laughs> uh, uh, together, we'll we'll, we'll make it a fascinating combination. But where uh, can people find you online? Find out more about you, your books, all that good stuff.
1: Everywhere, yeah, just as I said, Google me, I'm the only one on earth, and Twitter, <laughs> uh, my website, Amazon, Indie Bound, all over the place. Um, it's easy to find me, M I T A L I. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, wherever your favorite platform is. I don't do Pinterest because I'm not a visual person, but I'm everywhere else I am you will find me. I will be like that scary cr- clown. I will show up on your social <laughs> media. <laughs> That's not for horror. Vitaly Perkins will find you.
0: It's <laughs> the greatest uh, plug I've ever heard. <laughs> I will terrify you on social I'll media. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> no, I will terrify
1: you. No, I'm sweet on social media.
0: <laughs> I might terrify you, esteemed reader. You can find me at MG Ninja on Twitter. Look <laughs> forward to that and middlegradeninja.com. You know who I am. Uh, Metallica, I always ask our guest, uh, thank you again for, for making the time. This has been an absolute treat and a pleasure. Yeah, uh, I always ask our guest to sign us off with the totally ninja-like, justifies the name of the show sign-off phrase, Hiya, and what have you. Will you sign us off?
1: I will, and I decided to do it in the Indian accent. Are you ready? Okay. Hiya, and what have you. Well, that was terrible. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> That was so pathetic. I my apologies to all my Indian American friends. <laughs> oh, Robert, you want to give it one more go? Yeah, let me give it one more go. That was awful. Okay.
0: No, I'm leaving it in. I thought it was hilarious. But You can, you can correct <laughs> no, it. Come on, leave
1: it, want. it in. Leave it in. It was good. It was the worst Indian accent I've done ever. Oh, boy. Hiya. yeah. And I sounded like I was Russian. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.